Good day, everyone. I'm Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian welcoming you back to my mental chaos. Today, I'm discussing how our belief in God makes us blind to reality. Galileo observed this religious-induced dereliction of reason anomaly when Catholic authorities put him on trial for his heretic belief that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the solar system. Galileo told the tribunal, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. Put under house arrest indefinitely by Pope Urban VIII, Galileo spent the rest of his days at his via in Arcitri, near Florence. Six hundred years later, I see the same loss of sense. Scared people too easily revert to simpler times when delusional fables and feel-good stories told by significant others offered them the solace they crave, replacing common sense with unscientific childhood beliefs. I've come across two cures for the coronavirus infection I'd like to share. The first cure commands you to read the Bible. The other one is for non-readers. Atheists might not want to continue further. I have terrible news for you guys. The guy espousing Cure One revealed God made COVID to kill the atheists, a thing he started during the Spanish flu. But something got mixed up, and both religious and non-religious folk died back then. But now it's different. COVID is here, and both these pastors have a cure available only to the faithful. Cure for the coronavirus is in the Bible. It has always been there. The coronavirus isn't the first virus given by God. There's been hundreds of plagues documented in the Bible because of man's sins. However, God also gives a cure in the Bible. If anyone tells you what the cure is, don't believe them. Because I don't think it's God's will for a preacher to give you the cure from the Bible. So I'm not going to tell you what the cure is. I'm just going to say, read the Bible, the cure is in there. As for atheists, they're not going to read the Bible. They don't believe in God. It's my opinion that this virus was created just for them. For those who cannot read but need protection from the coronavirus infection, you have only to stand in front of the TV to participate in Cure 2. Just make sure you've sent your weekly tithing in and you're on the right television channel. Put your hand on that television set. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He received your healing. Yes. Now, say it, I take it. I take it. I have it. I have it. It's mine. It's mine. I thank you and praise you for it. Yes. And I forgive if I have all against any. And I praise you that I'm well and whole. I praise you that I'm well and whole. Yes. According to the word of God, I'm healed. Yes. And I consider not my own body. Yes. Consider yes. not my own body. I consider not symptoms in my body. I consider not symptoms in my body. But only that which God has promised. Only that which God has promised. Only that what the word has said. Only that what the word has said. And by his stripes I was healed. And by his stripes I am healed now. I'm not the sick trying to get healed. I'm the healed and the devil's trying to give me the flu.
or whatever else kind of thing he's trying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> heal and well. Yes. In the sweet name of Amen. Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Faith is a two-edged sword. It brings mental calmness, but at a cost. I had faith once, but lost it. Although I didn't see it then, I now realize I was paying a high price compromising real knowledge for the peace I felt believing in my God. Why does this illogical stuff happen? Why do we do this shit? Human nature being what it is allows faith to bend logic. After accepting church doctrine, I viewed the world differently. With less honesty and more prejudice, I donned mental blinders to help me ignore reasonable doubts. I did my mind bend because I liked the newfound peace that overwhelmed me. I simply passed my deep worries and doubts to the Almighty. Being baptized put me in an exclusive protected club. It lifted an enormous burden off me, but I signed a contract doing so. By promising to live my life seeking His perfection, I was rewarded with everlasting joy, etc., etc. Feeling this covenant was a good contract, I immersed myself in religious doctrine. But in the inevitable flow of nature, birth and life end in death and devastation, bringing questions about the unquestionable contract one makes with God. That happened in my case. I was 18 years old. A contract was a contract. What happened here? I believe the Almighty broke his promise, the contract to keep me and mine safe because I believed in him. Here's my story as narrated by Brian Ortiz. Chapter 8. My Faith Wavers Is God willing to prevent evil but not able to? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Epicurus I was in my sophomore year of college at USC, the University of Southern California. I spent the summer between Orange Coast College and USC working full-time in Long Beach with Brother Mike and our mutual friend Richard R. Mike enrolled in electrical engineering at Cal State Long Beach. His professor, Dr. Ed Evans, needed help building his tile-roof Spanish-style house. We worked all summer, five days a week. I spent most of my Mondays quiet and reflective because of my Sunday gospel enlightenment, mentally reviewing the church activities that happened the day before. Now, I'm sure my workmates rolled their eyes at my peacefulness, but they never outright challenged me on my beliefs. Besides enrolling in traditional courses at USC, science and mathematics, I also worked to strengthen my faith by visiting the Mormon Institute of Religion just off campus. It is a place where the Mormon Church provides religious education for students attending university. Courses included the importance of family history, preparing for an eternal marriage, missionary preparation, and principles of leadership. 
And to delve even deeper into my religiosity, to further enlighten my enlightenment, I enrolled in a secular class taught by USC Department of Religious Studies titled History and Literature of the New Testament. This course did not try to assert the divinity of Jesus as the Mormon Institute did. Instead, it explained the evolution of the writings of the New Testament in a historical sense. I signed up for these religion classes to feed my soul. While Mel and I were still living in her parents' house, I continued to follow our pattern of church activities in Westminster. Bishop Nielsen, the bishop of our ward, was impressed with my diligence and adherence to Mormon concepts. On March 30, 1975, I was deemed worthy to receive a temple recommend, which allowed me to enter the temple to perform all ordinances for the dead, engage in my endowment, and to get a sealing after civil marriage. This sealing was important. It was a way to eternally lock your marriage to your wife or wives into a forever and ever scenario. Mormon religious theory says you can become your own god over a planet. The sky is not the limit when you're a Mormon. A Mormon temple is different from a Mormon church. A church is also called a meeting house, used for weekly worship services. A temple is a building dedicated as a holy house of God, reserved for unique forms of worship, including ceremonies for the dead, and is the place where your spouse, spouses, become sealed to you forever. There are thousands of meeting houses, but only 134 LDS temples worldwide. Access is limited to those who have a temple recommend. My path towards enlightenment paid off. I finally was awarded a pass allowing me access inside God's house. During my year at USC, I either drove in with Mel and her mom, or I would drive in separately. Driving in with the girls made for a long day. I was dropped off on campus at 7.30 a.m. and stayed until 5.30 p.m. We didn't get home until 7 p.m. because Mel's mom needed to stop by St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach to be with her husband, who was now comatose from a brain operation. Gail's headaches had gradually been increasing in intensity until they were unbearable. He was seeing flashes of lights and hearing bells ringing. He went into the hospital for a workup during the fall of my year at USC. They discovered a tumor in his brain. Although he never awoke from the surgery, my mother-in-law spent a part of every day after work holding his hand. At first I followed Mel's mom into the room, but soon became frustrated and bored with the scene. Mel and I spent those hours in the car waiting. After my sophomore year ended and Susie died, Gail laid unconscious in his bed. Towards the end of the summer, he became agitated and shaky, but remained comatose. Mel's mom arranged for Gail's father, Gail's brother, Gail's son, and myself to perform a laying on of the hands, a blessing bestowed upon the ailing to make them whole again. At least that's what I thought. With closed eyes, four Mormon Christians laid eight hands upon Gail's head to present the blessing. Gail's father started a recitation, praying for wholeness. As he did so, his son went into a severe convulsion, shaking violently. It was hard to hear the recitation over the seizure vocalization, and it was hard to keep our hands atop the moving head. It was horrible. We were doing this in the name of God and rewarded with worsening signs instead of relief. I was horrified and disgusted. What happened to the contract I entered into during my baptism? I wondered to myself. How does one explain this horrible experiment? I misinterpreted the laying on the hands blessing. It was more likely one similar to last rites given by other Christians, but I had not thought of it that way. Inside my self-made bubble of stupid, nonsensical, evangelical expectations, I figured it was a last-ditch effort to help this man's suffering instead of mental preparation for his death. 
Gail died the next day, August 23, 1975. I was angry and felt betrayed. Andrea buried Gail in Utah where he was born. I can't remember if we drove or flew a plane there. I don't remember anything about where we stayed. I don't remember the funeral ceremony. The only thing I remember is when Mel's mom took my hand in the lead funeral car going to the ceremony. She told me she knew how much I was going through and was concerned for me. Although thanking me for all my concerns, my worries, and my help, she was worried the death would shake my faith. Her fears were well-founded. I was very much rethinking my faith and my religion. I changed schools again at the beginning of fall 1975. I was still interested in vet medicine as a career, so I called up the veterinary admissions office at UC Davis. Susan was in charge of admissions. I told her the courses I had already taken and asked her about other things I could do to enhance my chances of acceptance to veterinary school. She said I needed to get veterinary experience. She also told me to change to a UC school. I transferred to UC Irvine, which was a lot closer to where we were living. Besides being closer to home, UC Irvine was near Orange Coast College, and I returned to the OCC library to my old study spot. One day, during a break from studying, I went back to the bookshelves to see what interested me. I looked up religion, Joseph Smith in particular, as he was the founder of the Mormon Church, and picked out a book called No Man Knows My History, The Life of Joseph Smith, by Fawn Brody. I might as well be more familiar with the man who started the LDS religion, I thought to myself, and I checked the book out. The author grew up in Utah in the Mormon Church, and her family had strong historical ties to it. Her grandfather was president of Brigham Young University, and one of her uncles became the ninth president of the Mormon Church. Because of her heritage, she was allowed access to historical documents off-limits to most biographers. She brought to her book many details on the mysteries of the early era in the formation of the church not included in church history. I later learned the publication of her book caused the Church of Latter-day Saints to excommunicate Brody. She wrote, as the church teaches, that Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Mormon Church, found golden plates in the hills of Palmyra, New York. The concept of Joseph Smith finding treasure was not new. Early on, before he developed his title of church leader and prophet, he routinely hired himself out to help people seek Indian gold. The first white settlers spreading westward into Indian lands came upon large hills of earth, thought to be Indian burial mounds. Some people believed that these hills held treasures among the buried bones. Joseph Smith capitalized on this idea, telling people he found magical stones through which he could find treasure, rocks that talked only to him, from which he could see gold and silver within the Indian mounds. No treasure was ever found. One fellow who felt cheated on a treasure-hunting contract did successfully sue Smith for defaulting on the deal because, again, nothing was found. Smith's only historically lasting treasure find was one of supposedly finding golden plates, the revelation that led to the formation of the church. These plates, he said, there were lots of them, were etched with mysterious letters, and only Joe Smith had the tools to understand, using stones he found in the mounds. He named them the Urim and the Thummim. They were magic. Using these stones, Smith was able to translate the Book of Mormon from the Golden Plates. He read the plates aloud to a scribe who wrote it down in English, revealing the Book of Mormon. The secretary was never allowed to see the plates as he would be smitten to death, or some such shit. So to get the translation done while preventing his friend's early demise, Joe Smith placed a bedsheet drapery between them. Now he could read the plates in peace, 
and his friend wouldn't be toasted into oblivion by accidentally catching a glance of the golden inscriptions. Like the Ten Commandments, these plates have never been found. Brody found another troubling fact. Joseph Smith claimed to have translated a newly found testament, calling this new literature the Book of Abraham, proudly showing his converts the Egyptian papyri from which it was translated. Years later, but still within Smith's lifetime, the Rosetta Stone was discovered, and his Book of Abraham was shown to be nothing more than an Egyptian funeral document. Then there was the problem with alcohol. When the sect was developing a community in Nauvoo, Illinois, Joseph Smith declared alcohol was prohibited, yet he allowed his bodyguard to run a saloon inside the prophet's house. Another problem occurs with the idea of polygamy. Before they moved to Illinois, the sect built a temple in Kirkland, Ohio. Evidently, it was in this temple Smith received the revelation that plural marriage was to be encouraged. However, this revelation was a later add-on that probably started when Lil' Joe fancied other gals nearby. Nowhere in the Book of Mormon is any mention of plural marriage. It was something Joe dreamed up a few years later. And now it was doctrine. But when Smith's first wife, Emma, found her prophet, husband Joe, with Eliza Snow, one of his first plural wives, it didn't sit well with wife number one. Emma promptly flung her down the stairs and drove her out into the street. Evidently, she hadn't seen the enlightened directive about other women. To me, this did not sound like the uplifting, supportive wife of a prophet of God, but possibly the tired and betrayed wife of a delusional charlatan. I suggest that when I was ready to receive my baptism, the Mormon Church would have refused to baptize me, let alone grant me a temple recommend, if I had shown similar behavior to Joseph Smith's. Both he and his brother were murdered before the historic march to Utah when the religion was taken over by Brigham Young. In the years following Joseph Smith's death, the Church of Latter-day Saints continued to flourish. Today the Church is considered a dominant religion. I suspect Joseph Smith capitalized on a frontier population who were highly superstitious and poorly educated. The people welcomed a higher force to guide them through this wilderness, and Joseph Smith and his successors created a robust and powerful enclave from these collective yearnings, which was not a bad thing. However, a church made up and run by men was not what I was looking for, and I never presented my temple recommend to be part of the temple ceremonies of the Mormon church. It is likely many great religious movements have started from such a charismatic and controversial prophet. The early development of the Church of Latter-day Saints may not be any different from the beginnings of other great religions. The evolution of the Mormon Church is unusual in that it developed during written history and continued to flourish, intriguing investigators who can pursue a written tradition as opposed to an oral tradition. The end of summer took on a somber tone when Mel's dad passed away. Even though I had received a temple recommend earlier in the year, I still felt betrayed from the wrong response to Gail's blessing. Mel and I stopped attending church after we moved to a different ward where our apartment was. My faith remained tenuous after the funeral, and I never regained the fervor. I prepared for fall classes at UC Irvine. End of chapter. Chapter 9. I Find My Calling When I called Susan at UC Davis for advice on gaining admission to veterinary school, she said I needed more veterinary experience. The only veterinarian I knew was my horse vet, Dr. Seeley. I called Stella at his office and asked her if I could ride along with Doc on Saturdays. She said it was all right. Dr. Seeley had been welcoming free help for years. 
The next Saturday morning, I drove down Euclid towards Disneyland to meet up with Doc Seeley at a restaurant called Billy Mitchell's. While he was finishing his morning cup of java, I ordered two slices of sourdough toast, which I spread with jam. Although he offered to buy me an entire breakfast, I was happy with toast. From then on, I met with him every Saturday. We drove all over northern Orange County and southern L.A. counties treating horses for different ailments. My first task was to learn how to handle a twitch, a restraining device used to keep the critters still. Doc Seeley's twitch had a 12-inch chain attached to a two-foot wooden handle. Doc put his left hand through the chain loop and dangled the twitch from his elbow. Next, he grabbed the horse's nose with his fingers, slid the chain above where his hand was still holding the nose, twisted the metal chain by rotating the wooden handle, and tightened it so it stayed on the nose. This maneuver captured the horse's attention and usually made it calm down. I stood right next to the horse's left shoulder and kept the twitch steady and secure, holding it tightly with both hands. After the horse had calmed, Doc gave it its shots, warming medicine, or whatever else was needed. Sometimes a horse wouldn't even let Doc come close to the nose. Such a recalcitrant would be eared. Doc grabbed the horse's left ear and twisted it hard until the horse submitted. Then it was my turn. I'd come with my right hand, taking over the grab, freeing Doc to twitch the horse. It was important I stay as close to the shoulder as possible. That was the safe zone. I was not to get in front of the legs. As I worked with Doc Seeley, I began to anticipate what he needed for his call, readying things for him, gathering the twitch, his bucket, and his surgery supplies. And I was just as happy cleaning up and putting stuff away. I was excited, thrilled to death about these new experiences. One morning, I stopped off at a bookstore and bought the only veterinary title available, the Merck Veterinary Manual. During one of my Saturdays with Doc, we drove down Euclid right past my apartment. Can I use your mobile phone to call home, Doc? I asked. He smiled, nodding his head. He handed me the phone. Guess where I'm at, I asked. Right out in front of our apartment. I'm calling you from Doc's truck. I'll see you later, I told Mel. I was flushed with enthusiasm and having a great time helping Doc Seeley on his appointments. These Saturdays became the highlight of my week. The times I spent with him and the horses were fulfilling. They reinforced my desire to work hard at school each week, and they helped me decide what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I worked hard on my studies during the week to keep my GPA up. Good grade scores were necessary for acceptance into vet school, but the Saturdays were just as important they renewed my focus. Veterinary medicine became my church, the Merck Manual became my Bible, and the college library became my chapel. End of chapter. Feeling my God abandoned me, I lost my faith a few years after baptism. Now I am firmly in the science category of the debate over our evolution. As Galileo said, where the senses fail us, reason must step in. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. I've included pictures too. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick my books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book as well as an 11-disc audiobook set or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. I'll be back next week with another blog. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.